Let's pray. Jesus, you are our Savior. And what a great Savior you are. That you would love us so fully and so completely. We don't deserve you. We're singing all I, all I have, all I want, all I need is you. And there are truth, there's, there's so much truth in those words, and at the same time, God, I can think of, of times where even this week, I've, I've just wanted to set up my own little kingdom that I can rule over. And I'm reminded of my, my selfishness. Times where I lack grace. And it shows my need of you. But it also shows that there are times where my heart is wanting other things. And that's wrong. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who forgives sin. Lord, I, I, I pray now in this little bit of time that we have together that you would give us a sense of the scope of Jesus. That through the text, you would magnify him to us. That we would see the greatness of Jesus. Open our eyes, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every now and then, people who are, who are great thinkers somehow lower themselves to what can best be described as late night dorm theorizing. You know, where 18 to 22 year olds stay up way too late, are massively sleep deprived, probably over caffeinated. And they're laying in bed and, and solving the world's problems in theories with theories that, that at 10 a.m. the next day no longer make sense. And some of those theories are what if, you know, there's so much tension around world religions. What if we just made a new religion that could unify everybody and then we can just be peaceful and happy? Brilliant. And wonderfully condescending and and patronizing. Well, every now and then those ideas make it past the dorm room and to real conventions. And in 1893, one of those conventions happened. It was the World Parliament of Religions, and it was in Chicago. And Chicago was all shiny and new after the fire. Everything was, was rebuilt. They were ready for such conventions again. And there was a man that, that many of us have heard of, D.L. Moody, who saw this as a great opportunity because the spiritually thirsty from around the world were coming to Chicago. And so he put evangelists and preachers in every conceivable venue, even renting circus tents. And he had some of his friends were saying, all right, D.L., here's what you need to do. You need to get up in those platforms and you need to tell everyone how wrong 
the world parliament of religions is. Because this world parliament of religions, what they were doing is it was some of the greatest thinkers from different religions and, and ph philosophical backgrounds from around the world were coming together and they were talking about, well, here's what my viewpoint brings here, the strengths of it. And, they, and there were some that thought out of this might birth a new world religion that would bring peace to the world. And so there were some of D.L.'s friends who were saying, you need to go and you need to tell them just how wrong all this is. And D.L. said, no, that's not what I need to do. He said, instead, I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. He knew that preaching the reality of Jesus and all his majesty, his humility, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection, in the love of Jesus would be enough. That using the bitter words to dismantle this campaign of this parliament of religions wasn't necessary, but the beauty of Christ was. And he was right. During this Chicago campaign of 1893, thousands came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I don't know all that D.L. preached that summer. I don't know all that his various uh, co-workers in Christ preached. But I imagine if they were seeking to proclaim the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, to lift high the person and work and lordship of Jesus, I imagine at some point they went to Colossians 1. I imagine at some point this passage was read. See, Paul, he wrote this and he... Paul knew the best defense against the lies of secularism that, that belittle Jesus to the point that he's just like us and the lies of the Gnosticism that was so prevalent during the day, the lies of the Gnosticism that says Jesus is merely a step on the way to the true God, that he's not true God himself, but he's a step on the ladder that gets you to the true God. Paul knew that the best defense against these things was not pointing out their logical fallacies. It wasn't archaeological evidence. The best defense was, was just pointing out who Jesus really is. Paul defended Jesus like you would defend a lion in a cage. He let it out. I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't command the disciples to be well-versed in, in all the apologetic strategies. And I like apologetics. He just tells them, go and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. And that's, that's what Paul did here. This church is facing a lot of pressures. It's facing a, a lot of bad philosophies. Paul's going to get into that in chapter 2 of Colossians. But Paul, instead of going right after that, he starts with saying, here's Jesus. Let's look first and really good at who Jesus is. Paul knew that knowing the reality of Jesus has a life-altering effect. Because, because Jesus is the royal, omnipotent servant. Knowing the reality of Jesus, I'll say it again, has a life-altering effect because He is the royal, omnipotent servant. Before we look at just verse, verses 15 to 20, let's read together. 
uh, 15 through the end of chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul's talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Jesus, first of all, is the royal, omnipotent servant. If I were to ask you, I'm I'm not telling you to do this, but if I were to ask you to turn over your notes and draw a picture of Jesus, think in your mind of what you would draw. Some of you might draw the cross. Some of you might draw Jesus walking out of the tomb. Some of you might draw Jesus on the throne now. Some of you might draw the manger Some of you might draw Jesus sitting on a rock holding kids. None of these are inaccurate, but all of them by themselves would be incomplete. Now I know an illustration is not the same as theology, but sometimes our theology, or or in this case our Christology, what we believe about Jesus, can get fixated like like the pictures we would draw. And they can, they can narrow the scope to one moment in Jesus' eternity, one moment in his earthly ministry. And Paul, in this passage, is, is calling us to zoom out and see the whole thing. It's like if you're in Colorado and you see a mountain and you, we don't want to just take a picture of one rock face of the entire mountain. We want to see the whole mountain. And Paul is challenging us to step back and see the whole Savior, the royal, omnipotent servant. We don't want to miss anything. Few weeks ago, I, I talked. I, I likened this to uh, driving on a on a highway in Iowa in the winter, and you don't want to go into the ditch. And with with our view of Jesus, one ditch could be that He is so holy that we can't approach Him, and one ditch would be that He's so familiar and He's so humble that we almost become superior to Him, or that He's or that we are on the same plane as Him. And, but in the middle of the road, we see Jesus as fully God, fully man, full divinity, full of humility, and yet, yet going to be worshipped by all. And so Paul is calling us to the center here. And first of all, that he is royal. Starts out, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
And this is how the section starts. But in just verses 15 to, to 20, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And verse 19, For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is very concerned, one, that we see that Jesus is fully divine. He is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This image, this isn't that, this isn't that Jesus is a caricature of God, but He is the exact imprint of God. He is the exact imprint. Not, and sometimes we can think of this as just as a portrait, but let's think of it as the divine nature of the, the exact character. Jesus is the exact likeness. Paul says in Philippians that He is very nature God. He is one with God. He is God. The video we had started out with He's the second person of the Trinity. We have God the Father. We have God the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit. And then some people struggle with the firstborn talk out of here. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of all creation. You know, we know John 3.16, He is the only begotten Son of God. This doesn't describe Jesus' beginning, but it describes His status. That He is, it's not that Jesus was created. We're going to see in a little bit that He was the Creator. But it's that he has this royal status of firstborn. He is, he is first in line. Verse 17 says that in everything he might be preeminent. He is royalty. He deserves worship and honor and admiration. It is due him. And I hope our individual walks, our daily lives, our worship reflects the preeminence of Jesus. Here in America, we have a, a strange relationship with royalty. And every time someone of the, quote, royal family gets married, has a baby, or sneezes, it's all over the news. And, and they show, like, I, I heard, a, they did a study a number of years ago, I think it was when, when Prince William got married, that the U.S. is more obsessed with this than anyone in the Commonwealth. And maybe it's just me, but didn't we have like a tea party and win a revolutionary war? Like, aren't we free from having to get up at 4 a.m. to watch a wedding on TV of people that don't know we exist. And, I, and the, every time there's a preoccupation with the royal family, I just sit, I'm like, we have the 4th of July. Like, we light off fireworks to celebrate that we don't have to do this anymore. And yet, if someone tells me they're going to London... 
I'll gladly tell them, oh, when I was in London, I saw the queen and I took a picture and she drove, she rode a car right in front of me and I'll get excited. And, the, and her royalty has no bearing in my life. I don't pay dues to the queen. I don't have to bow down to them. And we as Americans can get so fixated on that royalty and ignore at the same that, that royalty that has no authority over us. And at the same time, be very nonchalant about the royalty of Jesus. Who has the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has supreme royalty, not just over us, but over all creation, over all the universe, over all people, whether they realize it or not. And as a, quote, follower of Jesus... I can ignore that while being excited that I once took a picture of the queen and she wasn't even looking at me. We have the the Lord's table set in front of us. And I, I hope as we are getting ready to take communion at the end of this message. I want us, as we're preparing our hearts even now for that, to realize that this isn't a, just a humble man who died on the cross. This isn't just a humble Savior. This is the royalty of the universe who spilt His blood for us. He is supremely royal. And He is omnipotent. One thing I've had to challenge myself in, in, my, in my own personal theology is I've worked it out, continue to work it out over the, next, uh, the past few years. I'm sure I'll continue to work this out for the rest of my life. Is, is when I think of the omnis of the character of God, you know, the omniscience, all-knowing, omnipotence, the omnipresence, that I, those aren't just true of God the Father, they are true of God the Son, they are true of God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And so here, God the Son is shown as omnipotent, as all-powerful. Look at verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things were created through Him. We often think of God the Father as Creator, but, but let's go back to, um, to Genesis 1 in our minds. In Genesis 1.26, the sixth day, God's getting ready to make humanity, and He says, let who? Let us. And this could be the kind of the self-pronoun of, of majesty and authority and, and royalty, and, and indeed some ways it is, but it's also the whole trinity is present at creation. John 1.13, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. 
John 1, 1, uh, it's not, not 1, 13, 1, 1 to 3. It then goes on to say, and speaking of this Word, who is Jesus, all things were made through Him. There, was, there is not anything that was made that was not made through Him. That Jesus didn't just do one aspect of creation. It wasn't, it wasn't like God said to his son, okay, Jesus, you go work on that back there that none of the neighbors will see, and I'll build this up here. No, all things were made through Jesus. Things visible, things invisible. And the list gets exhaustive. It's the thrones, the dominions, and, and, and the rulers and authorities. And the picture that Paul is painting here is that Jesus didn't just make the physical realm, but he made the spiritual realm as well. Jesus created the angels. Jesus created the atoms, the molecules, the water, the mountains, the birds, the fish, the creatures, us. He created all of it. This is a very short, exhaustive list of the things that Jesus made. All things were created through Him. And not only were they created through Him, they were created for Him. I want us to think about this for a moment. All things were created for Jesus. And how many times do we have like an inspirational poster with a Bible verse that talks about creation being something that glorifies and worships God, and it's a picture of a mountain, or you, you go you know, to a national park of some kind, or maybe if you're in a plane and you're looking out and you're, you're seeing the expanse of earth underneath your plane as you're 40,000 feet up, and you're thinking, wow, God made all of this. All of this is, is for God. Or at night, you look at the sky with the stars, and you're like, oh, this, this declares the glory of the Lord. Surely this was made for the Lord. And it's easy to do on that macro level. It's, it's so easy to do on that macro level that that mountain was made for Jesus to, to proclaim His glory. That this wildlife, that this earth, that those stars in the cosmos, they were made for Jesus. But what happens when we take that to the micro level? The land that Des Moines is on was made for Jesus. The land that you pay a nominal fee to the bank to have your house on, or that you own outright, your property was made for Jesus. The building supplies that compiled for your house were made for Jesus. You as an individual, your marriage, your singleness, your children, your lack of children, your grandchildren, whoever it is, you look at your life and it is for Jesus. Your affections, your sexuality, all of this is for Jesus. And you can either realize that and say, yes, Jesus is preeminent in everything, including myself, or you can walk in rebellion of that. But it was made for Jesus. You were made for Jesus.
And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is omnipotent and Jesus is our sovereign Savior. And as we look at this and we say, all things are made for Jesus. And we look at our own lives. I, I take inventory of myself and I say, yeah, I was made for Jesus. And there's a lot of times I don't act, think, and live for Jesus. There's a lot of moments in any given day where I act, think, and live for Chuck. I do what's best for me. I get bitter, I get upset, I get selfish with my time, with my resources. I get upset when the kingdom of Chuck doesn't play out the way I think it should. And every time I do that, every time I do that, I'm living in rebellion of this. Every single time. I'm saying, Jesus, you created it, it's created for you, but I'm going to take this small piece of pie and I'm going to make it for me. And I am creation, thumbing my nose at Creator. And the Creator has every right to come up to me and go, He has every right. He would be fully justified in that. But look what Paul says. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Even the parts of my life where I try to not have him be preeminent. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One of the implications of everything being made by and for Jesus is that Jesus gets to write the rules. And he can write whatever rule he wants, and and I really don't get a say in it. He can write whatever rule he wants, And if I break it, it's my fault. He's the creator. This is everything is his. Now think about this. If If this said, everything was created by and for Jesus, and Jesus changes his standards to fit the culture, that'd be completely wrong. And yet there are people who believe that. There, there, there are people who preach that from pulpits that look similar to this. That God conforms to the culture. And, and if, if, if God conformed to the culture, He would not be Lord. He would be a fickle politician seeking spiritual election. This creation is His.
And if I step out of line, it's not the deity who is wrong, it is me. And if I, if I, if I damage a relationship that I have with someone, if it's, if it's squarely my fault, whose responsibility is it to make it right? It's mine, right? If I, uh, Kent Wagner up here, everybody loves Kent. If I offend Kent, if I'm gossiping about Kent, saying Kent's a jerk, and that gets back to Kent, hey, Chuck's telling everyone you're a jerk. It's not Kent's responsibility to come and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm a jerk. Oh, Chuck, I, I'm so sorry, I'm a jerk. <laughs> no, it's not Kent's responsibility to do that. It's my responsibility to go to Kent and say, I was gossiping and that was wrong of me. And so I've come and I've, I've said to Jesus, you've created everything, it's all for you, and yet I've done things my own way. And so it's my responsibility to make things right with Jesus, but I'm incapable of that. And so Jesus reconciles me to himself by the blood of his cross. He reconciles you to himself by the blood of his cross. He says, you know what? You screwed this up. It's all your fault. And I'm going to do absolutely everything to make it right. He serves his creation that rebels against him. He lays his life down. Because he is the royal omnipotent servant who transforms enemies into ministers. Look at verse 21. You who are alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Romans 8.5 and, and Romans 8.7 it, it, it talks about how our minds were on the flesh. And the mind that is on the flesh is hostile towards God. We need to realize that before we came to profess Jesus as Lord, before we had this full unity with God through Jesus Christ, we were enemies of God. We were hostile towards God. We were, in, as Ephesians says, we were children of wrath. We, we followed the sons of disobedience. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were dead in our sins. We were bad. Unable to reconcile ourselves. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You who were once alienated, you were hostile in mind, you were doing evil. Jesus has reconciled you to God. This is the life-altering effect. We are part of his creation that we were made for Jesus. We were walking incorrectly we were walking in this false reality that says i am number one the world needs to serve me as as one of our elders likes to say we're we're entitled to 70 years of uninterrupted happiness and jesus is not lord that's that's what, how we walk and say and jesus comes and he, and, and he says, I am Lord, and I'm going to die on the cross so you can know me as such. 
I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to transform you. I'm going to give you a proper view of reality. I'm going to change the orientation that you're set on so that you can see me as Lord. He corrects our reality by opening our eyes to see Him as Lord, enabling our knees and hearts to bow before Him, and loosening our tongues to proclaim Him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we are reconciled, we are changed because Jesus is not just Lord of our hearts and our eternity. He's Lord of our bodies and our now. There's an old apostolic confession that says, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. But look at, look at the rest of verse 22. Because we weren't just saved. We were saved for a purpose. Uh, I've, I've been sitting in uh, Chris Milkey's class, God's Heart for the Nations, and this morning we went through some different passages in the Old Testament and said, is this a blessing or is there a purpose behind it? And we realized with every blessing there is a purpose. You are reconciled with a purpose. He has reconciled you in His body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is not holy and blameless and above above reproach in front of a human judge that looks at whether or not you did a specific crime or not, but this is holy and blameless and above reproach before him, God. That's a tall order. There's a lot of stuff in here that's not holy and blameless and above reproach. But this is the process of sanctification that God saves you and He changes you. Do you realize now, if you're following Jesus, that that Jesus is changing you? Sometimes it's really slow, but He is changing you to present you to Himself. Because you were created for Him and you were living in a way that didn't bring Him glory and so He died on the cross in order so that you could bring Him glory. He didn't just write you off. This is the good news that Jesus doesn't write us off in our sin. He doesn't say, oh, there's another sinner. Clear the slate. We'll start over again. He says, there's a sinner. My son died on the cross for them so that they could actually live for him as they were created to and be more human. They're more of the image of God. He changes us. He alters our life so that we can walk with him, that we can glorify him. And then we have verse 23, which which doesn't sound as optimistic as it is. It says, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This isn't be holy and blameless. Well, if you continue, and, you know, odds are. That's not Paul's attitude. It's more... Another way to say this would be, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. One commentator says that this is Paul's admission that the gospel is not magic. This isn't 
This isn't sham wow for the soul necessarily, where it's like, oh, and all of a sudden you have a brand new carpet. Um, in some ways you do, and in other ways it's just you're now on the process of coming to this holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Remember Paul's words in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm, I don't feel very holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That's okay. That just means we're not at the day of Christ Jesus yet. That means he's still working in you to present you to Himself for His glory. And we get glimpses of it as we grow in Christ. That God will continually glorify Himself in us. And Paul uses himself as an example at the end here. You look at alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul was a persecutor of the church, zealous to end Christianity. Separating families, throwing people in jail, approving of stoning Stephen. And here he is a minister. God would transform you from being an enemy who is hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, to being a minister. To being a minister of his love in the nursery, in Kingdom Quest, with the youth ministry, going out on short-term missions, going out to your workplace, going to your neighbors, going to your family, raising your children, all in a way that glorifies Christ and spreads the news of his reconciliation. We have such great news here this morning. That our royal, omnipotent servant Savior saw us completely incapable of glorifying Him, completely incapable of walking with Him on our own. And He laid His life down. He reconciled us to Himself through the blood of His cross, through the tearing of His flesh, through the pouring out of His blood. He reconciled us to Himself. What a great God. What a great Savior we have. And this morning, as we are in the process of continuing in our faith, steadfast, remembering the hope that we have, the hope we've been called to, we remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I'm going to ask those who are helping with communion, helping to serve communion, if they would come forward, let's bow our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, You are so good. Jesus, You are so gracious. You are omnipotent. You are the Creator. And God, there are so many times that we as creation are not walking for Jesus. Lord, would You forgive us of that? Would You forgive us God, forgive us of the times that we try to find our happiness and joy in something other than You. Forgive us of the times that we are harsh, that we are unforgiving. God, would You forgive us of the times where we act out in fear 
instead of acting out in the joy of the Lord and in the confidence that we have of walking with the creator of the universe. Forgive us of our lust and our pride. Of all the times where we live and strive for the kingdom of self as opposed to the kingdom of God. Lord, would you continue to have your transforming effect on us to glorify yourself through us over and over and over again. And we long for the day when one day we are presented before you and we are with you in eternity. You are our God. We are your people walking together. That there will be no sun because you are our light. And your glory is our light. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. To make us a new creation. To transform us. To serve us who are so unworthy of it. Lord, would you be glorified as you remind us of your grace as we remember what Jesus has done. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.